0: It's it's rolling. <laughs> so we are uh, pulling out of your house. The first question I have is why uh, why not have street uh, addresses and numbers?
1: <laughs> I think because um, it's not our way yeah. to have them. And so we've pushed back about getting them because we know each other. We know who we are. We know... And if you don't know where you're going, oh, you are just next to that person, and her sister's cousin is, or we have nicknames too of our streets.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. So, so they have names, sort of, but they're they're kind of passed down or passed around from person to person as nicknames.
1: Like we're on the highway right now. I don't know if you can tell. This is totally the highway. <laughs> okay. And uh, we're gonna pass Kane's Corner. This is Kane's Corner. So everybody just knows that. <laughs> right.
0: And it's like one of those, if you have to ask kind of things. Right, right. And then, uh...
1: Now, giving directions to outsider, outsiders, that's that's tricky.
0: Yeah. Well, it's kind of, I, I don't know, that's where, like, a Google, you know, geolocating...
1: Which exists now. Pin,
0: pin drop yes. is very... Easy. Very handy. Um,
1: so this is the village, considered the village and the highway. Kind of the core of uh, Ganawake. We have our library, a couple churches. That's the United Church. Right here is our fire brigade. It's volunteer, but we have a couple um, full time, chief, fire chief, and whatnot. This is Dodama's Cafe on the left, and it's uh, our local coffee shop.
0: Oh, yeah? Nice. That
1: might be a place to stop. They started with a lot of fruit infusions, like water infusions, cucumber, huh. jalapenos, strawberries, mint, and uh, they're doing a lot of teas now, cedar tea mixes, hibiscus, and of course they have the espresso bar. We passed the Knights of Columbus, so we have a Knights, uh, a marina, a Legion Hall, and the Moose Lodge, all social hot spots. Got it men can go to the office <laughs> <laughs> and women Enjoy their Good.
0: Yeah. also noticing the stop signs are in two languages
1: yep Destan stop and Destan there's a huge language revitalization happening right now in town and little by little you're seeing more and more people use it the the town taking initiatives and, and making uh, Ganyegeha signs that's you- the name
0: of the language yep Ganyegeha What's the What's the English-ling name for that language? Mohawk. It's Mohawk. Yeah. So it's specifically to Mohawk. It's not a larger language group.
1: No. Um, I mean, it could be Iroquois, but the Mohawk... Uh, there's a couple different Mohawk reses. And we speak the same, except it's tweaked a little bit. Okay. So if you go to a fluent speaker in aguazasne or Ganasadage, you'll understand them, but there are pronunciations that are a little different, some words that are different.
0: Does Kanawake spread out much further than this, or is it, it kind of here centralized? No,
1: it does spread out quite a bit. I'd say there's about five different major other roads that you know branch off of the village, and down each of, the, of those roads more bush, farmland, um, and then people's houses that have more space.
0: Tiffany Deer and I are driving around Kahnawake, Quebec just across the St. Lawrence River from Montreal. Despite a few noticeable quirks, no street names or house numbers for starters, there seems to be a strong Mayberry vibe here. Broad streets and trim houses and during this pre-COVID visit, a lot of exuberant Halloween decorations. Kahnawake is Mohawk land well tended because perhaps it is so hard won. This town is home, first of all, to the Mohawk Skywalkers, those fearless iron workers who built and continue to build New York City's skyline. And it's very well known for having stood up to the Quebec government during the tense and sometimes violent standoff known as the Oka crisis. Tiffany, my guide to the reserve, and the guest on this episode, comes from a long line of skywalkers and she was there for the Oka crisis as a child. That is to say, she is deep in the culture and the history here. And for her, food is at the heart of it all. Tiffany and I sat in her kitchen. We drank strawberry medicine that she prepared. We talked about Mohawk cooking in the time before salt and about the tense showdowns with white Montreal of her childhood. A warning. I probably pronounce Kanawage about five different ways in this episode, which is to say I have as much to learn as ever here, but I so appreciate Tiffany's good humor and generosity of spirit to help me start on the path. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you are listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. Let's start. And talk about this amazing-looking drink that you've made.
1: Okay, cheers! This is strawberry drink. Cheers! You'll notice you do have to chew, <laughs> which is a fun part of the strawberry drink. This is uh strawberries are one of our medicines, and um, this drink is mashed-up strawberries. And you can sweeten it with any any sweetener. I used maple syrup. And this is the drink that you would share um, with any celebration, traditional festival. Um, yeah. And one of one of our favorites at Pow Wows.
0: It's amazing. It's it's uh, incredibly delicious. Could not think of a simpler drink and is like, but it's so good. Like, what would you do to it otherwise? Uh, and yeah, even from the name on down, it's like. It's strawberry drink. <laughs> this, there's, not, there's no pretensions about it. It's just really, really delicious strawberries. I'm going to uh, give
1: you a tip. When you're making your strawberry drink, yeah. freeze your berries. Okay. When it's defrosted, it'll smash better and it has a better consistency.
0: Okay. Yeah. Maybe we'll put a little like a uh, strawberry drink recipe in the, in the notes for <laughs> Tiffany Deer's strawberry drink. And, you know, when you say medicine, I guess we can kind of get into that. A little bit in talking about Mohawk food in particular, or Indigenous food more broadly, but how how should a, uh, a settler like myself understand like the connection between food and medicine? Because you know, this is when you buy this in a you know supermarket, you are not going down the medicine section; it's the fruit or vegetable, <laughs> right,
1: right? Right. Well, it's what Mother Earth has given us here that'll help and nourish our bodies and our minds. So strawberries, for one, any one of the berries grown um, here and around, we're we're definitely focusing on local food right now, right? Um, So for myself as well, trying to better educate myself and what I know inside, like reaching back to that ancestral knowledge, trying to use what's here, what we've grown, what we used to have, and that being our medicine.
0: Right. So it's almost... It's almost like not a different relationship to food than uh, non-indigenous people have, but it's the way of thinking about what it's doing. Because whether or n- whether or not we are aware of it, you know, the food that we eat outside of indigenous culture is our medicine. It does affect our health and our bodies, and maybe we just have this very dim beginning of an understanding that that's true. But for you, it's in the language about how you talk about food. It's like this. This is this shit is pharmaceutical, <laughs>
1: right? Yeah, yeah. It's the connection. It's the connection to um, our Mother Earth, right? Like we've grown it and and then what it gives us. It's like a gift from the creator. And if you keep that in mind, then that connection, you have that that bond with the food. And it's more than just uh, flavor.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. And such a, you know, our, our mad dash to uh, just maximize the sweet and salt and crisp <laughs> and crunch. I, I mean, I, I was doing a, just as as uh, as much as I could try to get some insight into what Mohawk cuisine and, and food was like, one of the things that really stuck out to me actually was that salt was not a part of uh, traditional Mohawk cooking. Um, and that that's sort of stunning to me because salt is, of course, one of the great joys of life and also one of the great killers of, of, of man, you know, in these days. Um, but I, I guess the palate would have been quite different, right, if you're talking about food that isn't salted or even really spiced heavily in that
1: way. Yeah, when you haven't grown up with something, then you know you're, you're not missing it. But once it is in your life, uh, the lack thereof, it's it's quite noticeable. And a lot of times with my catering company, uh, people would want traditional food. And i you know, and I have to take it with a grain of salt, pun, uh-huh, um, <laughs> because the food would be quite bland and boring if if I did date it back 300 years ago to what we had, you know, but and what we like were working with. How yeah.
0: much authenticity are you ready to stomach? Huh? Right.
1: So really, it's it's fusion. Mm. You know what I mean? What, what? On producing now what what a lot of us are making and and calling traditional food
0: right so here we are right in the heart of kanawake and and uh we're just a stone's throw from a mexican restaurant you said everybody's <laughs> crazy about mexican food because once they discovered salt and spice uh-huh. and flavor uh <laughs> then then of course like you know you kind of gravitate toward it and maybe even the mohawks wouldn't be ready for um the 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 full cuisine of of yesteryear so how would you define Mohawk c- cooking in that, in that context and, and uh, how did it work with, you know, with the catering that you've done and the cooking that you do?
1: Well, in my mind, there's two uh, separate baskets of native food or Mohawk uh, food. And one basket would be filled with the traditional, our traditional food, which to me, what I grew up with it's meat pie, chicken and dumplings, the mashed potatoes, sweet potatoes, pumpkin pie, turkey. Um, and when somebody says uh, they're having a, a wedding or an anniversary or a baby shower, oh, what are you serving? Oh traditional. you know automatically, you know that that's your lineup. that's what you have to look forward to and and that's incredible. It's delicious. But the other basket would be like traditional food of our people, right not what we're consuming today but what we used to consume yesteryear and that would be the Hubbard squash uh, the three sisters mm-hmm. corn beans and squash um, a lot of game
0: right yeah which around here what is what what's that comprised
1: so it would be a lot of fish because we're right on the water and then deer uh, I'm sure rabbit
0: mm-hmm the three sisters is interesting cuz that's that's a concept that comes up a lot in in Mexico. I mean I guess all of the Americas have this um I mean it's a way of planting, right, where you uh you know, plant your squash and then the beans over it and it, yeah. uh I mean for me it's it's a um it's a through line, I guess, between the foods. And we're kind of joking about Mexican being super popular here, but
1: that's why, I mean, there's a connection. Yeah. Relate.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. These are not like totally foreign, uh, (laughs) concepts I would imagine. How, how do you, when you're talking to people about that difference between, I I don't know, it's, it's interesting. I'm trying to put it in a, in the context of like, you know a white family or something that grew up with like taco tuesdays and maybe that for them feels like the food of their family you know or like mm-hmm. the stuff that people cook when they get together because it's what they grew up cooking versus like yeah how far back you go I, I was in ireland and talked with an irish chef who was you know had done some work to like dig up the old cookbooks of a couple hundred years ago and was saying that one recipe you would just say first chop the heads off of a hundred herons <laughs> and then pickle them and, you know for any irish person today is just like absolutely stomach turning to think of the the mass slaughter and then pickling a bird seems real strange and yeah <laughs> so that kind of you know that that the difference between comfort food and like that traditional authentic i mean how do you find those recipes for one like where do you where do you go to, to get a sense of like that really old cooking of the Mohawk people,
1: right? So that's the work that I'm doing now is to try to dig up that kind of um, information but in the past I've just used what's in my heart and what's in my mind and Thought about you know gave it a little bit of thought about what? What would I have eaten prepared? 200 years ago 300 years ago and Today, making traditional fair fusion Mohawk cuisine, uh, I I just want to pull in flavors that are uh, staples to us, like like the squash, the beans, the corn, sage, cedar, uh, berries, beautiful berries, and then when I can get my hands on wild game, that's definitely you know playing. But then again, spicing the wild game. In the past, it would be really quite bland. Yeah. Yeah. Nowadays, I'll I'll totally spice it up.
0: Yeah, you don't you, you don't mind. <laughs> I'll season. You don't mind branding it. Uh, you're not you're not betraying anyone <laughs> no. in your in your lineage. I mean, that's that's kind of interesting though, because it sounds like it's almost for you a thought experiment of walking in someone else's shoes to try and come up with. And I'm sure it doesn't stop at the plate. Then then you're probably also it's taking you down a lot of roads. Like oh Christ, like what is it? What would it have been like to be Tiffany two hundred years ago?
1: Which is a fun trip to take.
0: (laughs) You get to kind of think about it. I mean, yeah, that is not a, that's not a thought exercise or experiment. I do. I mean, every once in a while I'll see a Hasid, which is essentially what my, you know, great, great grandfather looked like. Uh And I'll think, oh man, that's a trip, huh? (laughs) That could be me. Uh, That was me back, uh, back in the shtetl. But that's, uh, but that's as far as it goes. Uh, But for you, this was part of, you know, part of your, your life and career was trying to imagine uh, what it would have been like to cook and feed families uh, in that way.
1: I've certainly interviewed and asked uh, a bunch of elders and family members what they consider traditional food, you know what their favorite things to serve is to to help um, build a bigger, you know menu. yeah,
0: mm-hmm. what what I mean, what are their responses when you come to them with a question like that? like what do they what do they tell you?
1: Well, corn soup is huge. Usually everybody says corn soup, but I didn't really grow up too much with corn soup. My doda made it, but my mother didn't make it at home. Okay. Um, Boiled dinner. Your
0: doda is grandmother? Yeah, it's my mother's mother. Okay, got
1: it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So it's funny because growing up, my mom cooked uh, comfort food. Like, you know, regular, (laughs) everybody, (laughs) all over the world, comfort food. Right. Um, So... Even for me, we my father wasn't a hunter, my mother wasn't a hunter. Um, I've never uh, had wild game when I was young that I knew of. So it really is kind of an education for myself as well.
0: right. yeah. and now you were you were saying earlier, your dude is big into fishing, his brother's a hunter. and that almost does that does that make a big difference in the life of a of a you know a mohawk cook almost of having that direct access to those ingredients? Oh, absolutely. yeah, very
1: exciting. Uh, we went hunting last weekend and took i had the baby in a carrier and our two-year-old you know was walking with us or on his back and paul had his gun we saw a deer he could have taken the shot but instead he turned back to make sure we saw the deer and by the time he turned around you know to aim it had taken off Uh, but
0: that is that's a great metaphor for being a parent (laughs) you're just like am i teaching in this moment oh shit the moments passed
1: yeah we're uh, really we were out for a family walk uh thanksgiving walk with the gun and to think if he had gotten it like that's a lot of work yeah to gut it to quarter it uh we we had to go to this island by boat so we were all in this little boat i mean it's definitely the experience that i'm looking for you right. know and we're probably going to go again next weekend maybe not take the baby leave the baby with his mother but um it's new for me i i've never uh processed an animal like from from death to table
0: yeah it's intense the little parts i've done with it uh i've been involved with it it's it's intense and i guess it taps into something for for me that is uh very eye-opening i can imagine that it it kind of has a lot more roots in your thinking and and you know especially since you have been interested and obsessed with this cuisine for such a long time and that's such a staple of that that act of doing it um i can imagine the synopsis firing you know yeah i'm I'm
1: really excited
0: yeah uh, that's awesome um so i'm sure there are a lot of other qualities about your man but but just having that proximity to like let's get some fish and game yeah it's gonna be it's a a big selling point yeah (laughs) right on when you talk to people in terms of like you know elders and and people who might have had some exposure was their diet in their lifetimes you know 50 years ago did it feel different or has it been are we kind of in this you know this kind of taco tuesday culture for a while in terms of the way that people eat
1: thinking about my mother's experience growing up um she was of nine kids and uh, her father had died young uh, when she was probably three, so it was my my dutta raising nine children on her own. Ages, she was pregnant at the time, and the the eldest, my auntie Veronica, was probably twelve. So, they grew up pretty poor. So what I know of my mother's, um, she said my Dutta always had a huge plate of food like she always prepared enough for the family be it big pots of soup uh, when she'd make cornbread and steak you know lots more cornbreads compared to the steaks everybody got a couple pieces you know a couple bites of steak but um, she didn't grow up starving but they did grow up poor Mm. now what she grew up with was um like stews you know boiled dinner which is any kind of root vegetables um, and beans that you can get your hands on boil it with a a pigtail or two you know and then make dada bread which is just mixing flour some baking soda salt milk and frying it in your um, cast iron Hmm. yeah
0: so right and i guess that's also that's a big part of the cuisine too and and this is where like fry bread comes from and so on is it's it's like the the italian style of like poverty cuisine essentially Mm -hmm. that this food has been shaped by periods of intense um uh scarcity um so that would have been i mean that would have been throughout the last few centuries at least of of mohawk cooking it just would have gotten down to the most basic stuff of like yeah let's a stew we can put root vegetables in sounds like translatable even in the hardest times right huh when you when you go back and think i mean i guess that would that would sort of color this too but if you're in these kind of thought exercises of you know me as a as a as a mother and provider and, and cook 200 years ago in the way that you know the mohawk community was then is there any part of you who's like i would enjoy that more like i was set for i was meant to be in that life and not this one do you ever think that or are you I like, do no yeah. i do
1: absolutely and i would i do fantasize about going back because I think that I'd be really great at it. I was devastated when I realized um, I needed glasses and this was in grade six because I thought I was going to be a hunter. I thought I was, you know, a bow and arrow and I was meant to do that. But then you can't be a hunter when you can't see far. You know what I mean? Like, I think I haven't tried it with my glasses off, but... <laughs> that
0: would be some real forces with you stuff if you were out there just <laughs> slaying deer
1: and a yeah. very nearsighted child. Blindfolded, yeah. yeah. Um, so I knew you know, my passion was with my hands, what I could do in front of me, uh, children, food, crafts, which is, uh, what I'm reveling in right now.
0: Right. Right. I guess that's, that's part of the answer to it too, is like where, wherever your heart is guiding you seems to be skills that might have been useful back then. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I remember we spent some of the summer teaching, uh, teaching my son how to, uh, how to shoot and, uh, cook iguanas iguanas <laughs> yeah we have like a uh, where i'm from in the keys we have this infestation of non-native iguanas and you know guatemalans and mexicans and trinidadians eat them and so i got really interested in kind of shooting and eating them and you know listen it's not the best meat on earth and and butchering a lizard is a a huge lizard is a really troubling experience but one of the things i was like it just i was very proud of myself this is very self-serving I was very proud of myself for having taught my son something that was both, you know, a skill that would have been really great maybe like 200 years ago or in the Keys, you know, 150 years ago when it was pretty wild still. Uh, and then also will be great for the apocalypse that's coming. You Absolutely.
1: Know? I mean, anything could be eaten. Right. You know, and if you know how to flavor, if you know the tricks of slow and low or, you know, make it tender, that's that's the, the good education right there of yeah. knowing that knowledge.
0: I did overcook this shit out of the shit. <laughs> one, I was, I was a little afraid of the meat, so I cooked it too much. So, yeah, I, I need to get back down there and get another. Yeah, get
1: another one. Get another um, shot. My my man Paul grew up eating muskrat. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so they they also trap muskrat a lot, but I've I've not had one yet myself. But apparently, there's like a, a very musky smell about it Makes on these sense. muskrats. Yeah, but it, it's a rat. It's yeah. A, it's a forest rat.
0: It is a forest rat. Mm-hmm.
1: But and, it, and it's a delicacy to him now. Like he he wants me to learn. And I said, okay, go go get me some muskrats and I'll cook it.
0: And you're ready. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. And that's also like, I remember when, this is slightly off piste, but I remember when I was like Ted Turner had started to do these uh, bison restaurants. He was trying to make yeah. bison meat. And the thing that I thought was a little aberrant about the project uh i think there was some good intentions behind it but he was breeding these bison to taste the most like beef (laughs) right to to breed the flavor out of it
1: that's a head slapper right there
0: (laughs) (laughs) a head slapper is that's perfect way of saying it because it's like at some level like like paul with his muskrats like that difference in flavors, something that's actually valuable. Like you want to go out and get that, and he's not going to be able to find that in the grocery store. In that kind of like that context, like it tastes a little different. You should celebrate that yeah. on some level, right? Um, so they're not breeding the musk out of the musk rats <laughs> just yet around I here. I don't think so. Okay, uh, fair enough. So when you would do catering, like what what for you were some of these. Some of these dishes where you that that kind of mentality of mixing new with, you know, new new flavor demands with old styles. Like give me give me an example of a dish where that that worked really well for you.
1: Sure. Well, in my catering that I do, uh, a lot of it is geared for um, indigenous events. So they're calling me because they want to provide uh, an indigenous flavor. But then I also have the other side of catering where I'm catering big movie productions and when you cater a movie production, there's kind of a, a layout of what you have to provide. Now, the fun that I get to do is throwing in, you know, what I, my, my flavor. And a lot of it is butternut squash. Hmm. It's not the squash that would be, uh, would have been local and, and native to here. It would be that, that big Hubbard, But sometimes it's hard to get your hands on a Hubbard hmm. And a butternut squash, that big long neck. There's a lot of, a lot of good squash meat in there. So Number one, if I threw squash in it, boom! Like I would call it
0: native. Native.
1: That's awesome.
0: So it's like a little shorthand, a little something, just to let you know that next to the cheese cubes and (laughs) the sliced melon that you need to have for your movie catering, uh, here's a squash dish. And now, do how important is it to you that uh, you know that the the key grip knows that he's eating? Uh, something that's got a little native
1: touch to it. It's pretty important to me. Yeah. I like to put it out there. Yeah.
0: So you put it on a sign. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Or I'm standing in front of it. By the way, this is, you know. You
0: are now entering unseated catering territory. (laughs) Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, And then for the the catering jobs that they specifically hired me to do um, native flavors, uh, smoked sturgeon would be my first call to try to get my hands on smoked sturgeon. And luckily... Uh, it's Paul's brother, Danny, Danny boy. And he's, he'll take a huge order, make, he's got the best smoke sturgeon. in His
0: his name is Danny boy.
1: That's amazing. I don't think it's on his birth certificate, but everybody knows him as Danny boy. Danny boy. I've
0: I've heard it. I've heard it in the songs. Uh, got it. So he, and he's got the hookup with the sturgeon.
1: Yeah. I mean, they go nightlining and, and Paul's grew up helping him his whole life, um, and then right from pulling in these gigantic sturgeons from the water, you know, gutting them, um, heads off, actually, yeah, it is heads off, the brine overnight, and then the, the, to smoke it, it's an all-day process. Wow. Yeah.
0: Uh, and how do you use it? What does it end up? Uh, where, where does it end up in the, in the plate?
1: I'd say it's um, like smoked salmon, where I would slice it nice and thin. It's dry, but red on the outside and, and white on the inside the sturgeon becomes and it's got this incredible smoky it's very um like oily so it's it's very rich yeah it's delicious serve that with a nice like aged cheddar some crackers or beautiful bread wow yeah so it's not meant to be like a a fillet just just eaten like a chicken breast it's enjoyed
0: the Jewish half of me is very. Uh, the synapses are firing. Oh, you that. would.
1: You would love.
0: Is, I've, I've now found the Venn diagram between Mohawk and Ashkenazi <laughs> desires is like definitely around the smoke sturgeon. <laughs> that sounds amazing, uh, but it's hard to get your hands on. And yeah.
1: Yeah, and Danny Boy has to be available.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Uh, and it's not the same. It's there's not I mean, I guess that's true of the a lot of well, like you're saying with the Hubbard squash, just the supply chain isn't there yet. Mm-hmm. Right. To to be able to do this with great regularity or without substituting ingredients like that. Right. Um, so it's got to be butternut instead of Hubbard squash. But and what are some other ones that that you feel like, well, you know, this is what's available. It's the closest proximity to a Mohawk ingredient that we might have.
1: Um, cornbread and steak. Mm -hmm. So the cornbread is made with cornmeal, corn flour. Uh, I put oatmeal uh, in mine and kidney beans. And you mix it with hot water. You form uh, like a patty or a puck. And then that's boiled. So the cornbread, it's not like a southern style baked cornbread. It's a boiled cornbread. It's really dense, um, but not too dense. (laughs) And you, you serve that with sausages and steak and gravy. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: and so that's using store-bought ingredients essentially, unless
1: you're a hunter and your freezer's full of venison or moose meat. You know, so that would be your gravy, your your meat. Right,
0: and you said here in Kanawake, they that is the um that's the kind of Sunday feast yeah. that everybody has is cornbread and steak. Yeah, and it's so that's a beef steak because not it you know you can't go to the messy kitchen or a restaurant and get wild game. Uh, on on the regular not yet yeah um so and and what what is so that's like on sunday everybody comes out they will go to the restaurant or cafe of choice or or, make it in your kitchen or you can make it at home yeah uh and how how is it is it like a um is it a communal thing is it uh or like how how is it presented uh i guess the the cornbread and steak is it like i don't know the center of a big table or definitely eaten
1: best surrounded by friends and family yeah and it's you know platters and help yourself and everything's in a big bowl and but um when you're going out to get it yeah it's per plate you have your one cornbread your two sausages your piece of steak and your gravy Wow, all plated
0: that is meat it's a heavy
1: oh yeah it's a heavy awesome meal that is supposed to last you the rest of the day (laughs)
0: <laughs> you know it's interesting because I, I when reading a little bit about Mohawk cuisine I think there's been some times where people have you know focused on the on the three sisters and on the the kind of the certainly the the local produce kind of vibe that comes with the cooking and which feels to me at least like a big um, counterweight to the kind of lumberjack food that Quebec is known for <laughs> right which is just like, pig ears and maple (laughs) syrup and, you know, and all put on a giant plate. Uh, Is that a part of, you know, when you talk about Mohawk cooking, because obviously Mohawks are meat intensive and, you know, hunting wild game was always part of the culture. Um, But is there an aspect of it where you can say, Hey, you know, particularly here in Quebec, like it doesn't all have to be meat pie. Like there's, there's a better way. (laughs)
1: yeah sure. I mean, a lot of my catering too was um one of my mandates or my personal goals was to try to eradicate diabetes in our communities and with our people, so for a couple of years, I was really pushing uh tons of veggies, salad forward meals you know with with a token um protein clean protein but um
0: you lost that battle. Well, <laughs> <laughs> there's a pause there. It's like, and then I was I driven wish. out yeah. of town. <laughs> no, I only got to come back last year.
1: It's uh, funny because the education of health, you know, is is it it's everywhere and it's here too. And everybody's making strides um, to become healthier, but we're still a people who love uh, comfort food and bread and butter um, pastas. So it is kind of slow on some levels, but in others, uh, people are definitely a lot more gardens. You see people are gardening and a lot of people are raising their own animals. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, and it, it is, it's a dynamic, whether here or anywhere uh, across the state, certainly where the, the luxury, the privilege of caring about your health is you just, I don't know how it can be switched so that that's not the dynamic but it's but it's true like it's a great it's a great luxury to uh to be able to care about those things and not to just immediately go for survival yeah and something satisfying because you know because life's a little rougher than you'd like (laughs) and you 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 go for the butter or whatever it is and you know it takes a certain amount of uh focus and and leisure to be able to say like uh, now I'm really going to watch what I'm doing I don't know it's just always even you know even in our own communities down in the states where you can just tell the people who are super fit generally uh and are eating real well and feeling themselves like are generally just rich and they've got probably reasons that aren't that great for why (laughs) and you know
1: yeah I hear you when you have the luxury to to focus on on that Uh uh-huh
0: But maybe there's, I mean, I guess there's a counter narrative here, at least in terms of awareness, where you can say, actually, the most Mohawk thing you could do would be to be planting your own little garden here and have a squash heavy diet or something. Right. um, So that people can have some other way of engaging and thinking like, oh, yeah, this fits in. Like, maybe this is the comfort food that we didn't know that we used to have or something. (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah, that's interesting. So tell me the name. Uh, it's it's Guigui. Is the name of the catering?
1: Yeah, it's Guigui Gourmet.
0: Guigui Gourmet. What yeah. does that mean?
1: It means hey, hi.
0: Hey, not born hi. <laughs> no. Just, just hey, hi. Uh,
1: Segu is the more formal way to, to say a greeting. Okay. Um, but gué, is like, hey, yay. <laughs> I can see the match now. <laughs> yeah. I, I get it.
0: That is a good name for, uh, for any catering you would come and bring uh, out into the world. Um, and now Messy Kitchen, which, which has been ratified by you as the spot to come and eat <laughs> in town, they're doing a lot of the catering as well. You had mentioned catering for movie sets, and your, your sister's a director. And you were, we were just saying before we started to talk about her new movie, and, uh, and that you and your kids were extras in it. I think it's super fascinating. It's also, you know, I think a, uh, a big part of the story of this community uh, is the Oka crisis, which was 1990. Yeah. Can you give me the, the just like very brief like rundown of what that was? And because you lived through it uh, as a child. Um, and then what it was like kind of reenacting that.
1: Sure. So the Oka crisis happened when I was 10 years old, and it, it was about a, a sacred pines area in Ganassadage, which is another Mohawk reserve about an hour and 15 minutes from here. And there is a golf course that's bordering these very old pines, and the golf course wanted to extend and make a, a nine hole into an 18 hole, which they would have to cut down a, a big piece of, of this sacred pine area. Um, land. And so um, the people there I'm, I'm put already, their foot down. I'm already mad. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. from nine to 18 holes is really a,
0: a holy mission. I'm, <laughs> But Jesus Christ. Okay.
1: Um, and the contract uh, contractors, you know, they weren't stopping. So um, vocally, nothing was happening. So they took, a, our people took a hard stance and put up uh, blockades, like turned over cars and just made a, a barrier saying you're not going to cut these trees and you're not going to uh, encroach on this this traditional land and to brother up with them um gunawage which is an hour and a half away but you know there are our, our, our other mohawk reserve or brother and sisters um, we blocked the mercier bridge which is a a major major highway connecting south shore to the island of Montreal. Um, so that made major headlines. Right. And uh, we we blocked it completely for, I don't rem- remember exactly how many days, but it was like two or three months. Um, so really the world kind of stopped uh, at that point. I mean, the, the highways weren't running the same. There were, were helicopters all over the sky, the military and the army is here. Wow. Yeah, it was really intense. I mean, you're not... You're not worried about going to work every day anymore. Like really life kind of stopped and it was all about this crisis, right? And, and taking a stand and being strong.
0: And but, one of the unique things about this town is that you are the, you're the place where the pain can be put onto Montreal because you're right across the river. you you control the bridge, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. in, it's in your area. <laughs> uh, so even though it's happening up in Oka and, and you know, you were, You were the ones who could be and had to be the kind of pointy end of the out. Yeah, brought the story Uh
1: big time for sure. Um, So living it, it was kind of exciting for me as a kid. Um, It was like being in an action movie. I don't remember being that scared, except if I saw my mom scared or nervous or or stressed out, you know, then I felt it a little bit. But otherwise, uh, the highways were bare. We were biking anywhere you wanted to bike. Uh, There were uh, food food bank halls you know set up around town so me and my sister would go and pick out supplies because your regular grocery stores like food wasn't coming in the same way as before people were more neighborly you're borrowing stuff um and then your rat race your typical the typical rat race lifestyle uh kind of stopped it was like super summer vacation yeah Uh, so this is my memory but yeah beyond a 10 year old you know and i was very positive and optimistic uh, still am. <laughs> but beyond that, it was a very real situation and uh, very traumatic. Uh, so the bridge crossing when um, a lot of women, children, elders decided to leave town because there was rumors that the army would come in and then may it might get violent. But everybody had a gun, right? Like our warriors were standing, standing right. strong and ready. Um, so many, many people um, decided to leave, and we formed a, a convoy to cross the bridge. Uh, you know, our side opened it up, and it ended up taking many hours for the other side, uh, which was controlled by uh, the army and the Sûreté de Québec. Probably, um, it took them a long time. We waited on the bridge all day, and then when they finally opened it up, there was a huge angry mob on the other side of Quebecois. Yeah, yeah, um, yelling awful things and hatred and throwing rocks um so that became very real very quick for me uh and my experience it definitely was a formative time of my sister's uh life she was 12. Um, our car was pelted with um, rocks and uh, one came through the back window. It was me and two cousins uh, crouching down. I remember my mom screaming like, get down, get down, get down. You know, and she's yeah. crying and screaming. And, um, and then the window breaks and we're covered in glass. And you just hear the, the anger, wow. you know, outside the windows. Um, so by the time um, we had a bunch of cars lined up, I don't know, I don't remember how many, but at least 40, 50 uh, cars. Convoy. To
0: evacuate from town yeah and each each
1: car basically had uh, as many people as you can fit in them in the big town cars you know of 1990 Uh, we were leaving town because the threat of invasion from the army uh, it was rumored that they would come in and we didn't know how violent it would become Uh, a lot of us were holding um, very serious weapons and guns so
0: and already there was the (laughs) it's like the the warrior society was the kind of self-defense group and and they you know they were here to, to defend Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and the idea that the army would come in there could be and there had already been a death or two i think yes right? so it was that's the moment for you when it got it wasn't summer vacation it got scary and serious and right yeah yeah so this caravan of cars got onto the bridge and then what happened
1: we waited um on top of the bridge which is kind of a surreal experience when you're crossing it your whole life and now you're playing on it um, you know, throwing rocks down and and seeing the the different perspective because
0: uh, it was still blockaded and you you, you right. couldn't just go across right. To the it was other still side. blockaded. Yeah, both sides. Had how long a, did had you block. Sp- how long did you spend there?
1: I think about four hours. Wow, yeah. on the bridge. Yeah, and then when it was time, uh, it was a slow process. You know, now we have a bunch of cars and we're driving slowly, so it wasn't like we could speed past this gathering uh, mob that had you know gathered on the other side it was a uh, we were kind of crawled through them
0: so you got met by an angry mob of quebecois people on yeah. the other side yeah who now after a couple months of having the bridge down and
1: and a lot of hate a lot of yeah inconvenience
0: for all of the reasons that the whole thing started mm-hmm. like that had not been solved right um so that was your what, what do you remember about going through the mob there
1: um, it was uh, really scary. My mother was screaming for us to get down. I, I did peek uh, over the window because uh, I'm a kid. So I, I had to see what was going on. And you just saw a ton of people, men, uh, women, children, well, not children, but they were standing on um, uh, big piles, like uh, like the road being turned up, you know, like the gravel. Um, like asphalt. Just been like Yeah, mounds, yeah. mounds of asphalt. Uh, and they were just throwing all different sizes pieces at our cars wow yeah
0: knowing that having it very obvious that these were elderly children women, basically uh going through so this affected you obviously and your 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 sister was a little bit older Mm -hmm. um and she was 12 then she was 12 okay so so now uh how many years down we're almost 30 years past yeah she is uh making a movie that that you have taken part in What's the scope of the movie? What's it about?
1: It's basically a coming of age story of a 12 year old girl and how uh, this changed her life. Um, So my sister, uh, well, the main character is basically loosely based on her and Beans has a younger sister.
0: (laughs) Okay. Beans is her main character. That's the name of the movie too. Beans. Yeah. Got it.
1: Yeah. And the younger sister, her name is Ruby in it. How, kind of based on me <laughs> how,
0: how are you liking ruby as <laughs> oh, oh wow! seeing? so
1: i met i met her uh once and she's actually my friend's daughter and i i almost cried because it was like it was like looking uh through a time machine i saw myself so much in this little actress but i met her being herself like not on set not acting she's bubbly and so enthusiastic and like when I said you're kind of playing me when I was a kid and she was like wow you know and bouncing off the walls and I I just I related to her so much immediately oh, that's, that's awesome mm-hmm.
0: but then mm-hmm. not just your kind of on screen you but the actual you now with your kids you took, played a part in it
1: yeah we we were extras on the day where uh, we had the bridge um, Tracy did not block the bridge for this scene. It was already being uh, construction was having um, happening, so one lane, uh, one whole side of the bridge was already closed. So they utilized that. But regardless, we had all the old cars on the bridge. I mean, we had it completely set up with the with the old barricade. Uh, there was army, all our cars, all the women. Um, so a lot of a lot of uh, the cars passing on the other side. I mean, they were waiting in tons of traffic, which always happens when the mercy has construction on it. But Now they're yelling.
0: Oh no! You know,
1: either seeing the cameras and knowing it's a production and being like, "Whoa, cool," or the opposite, "F you," and you know, like
0: yelling the same shit. Yeah, the same in nineteen ninety.
1: Right. There were moments being an extra, and now I'm a mother, and I had my four kids with me. um, It was a completely different experience being uh, being a mother, trying to protect her kids. You and, were... and living through that and, and Tracy had, you know, the actors of, they were army, there were, they had their guns and one of them searched our car. So we had to keep repeating it, you know, cause you, you take two takes over and over again, but there were moments where my heart was racing. And, and I know now when, when you're in this industry where you recreate traumatic events, um, it is important to have people to talk to afterward, yeah. you know, and have that in place just in case.
0: In case you're re-traumatized. Exactly. By, yeah. I mean, it, uh. I'm sure it lends credibility and authenticity to the portrayal that you and your kids did, but that's tough stuff having gone through it. And I'm sure for your sister to, you know, spend this year of her life or however long it's taken to make the movie of just diving into those kind of tough moments. Right. Um,
1: yeah, she's so strong. Such an amazing storyteller.
0: You had worked with her on a on a prior uh, show too.
1: Yeah, she had a TV show on, uh, on television for five seasons and it was called Mohawk Girls mm-hmm. and I catered just about every season.
0: Nice. Yeah. Uh, and that, I, that was kind of interesting to me and, and it, for me it feels like this is what makes it the family's work in a way of, of you and her and, and maybe there are others in the family who've been doing this but it's kind of this like soft power. Right. I mean, Mohawk Girls is a way, at least from my understanding of what the show was, seemed like it was a way to kind of humanize and really bring bring people into the internal lives of these young Mohawk women who, you know, then get to be shown as regular people with the same struggles and, and interests and desires as outside. Yeah, which is so oppositional to this, like, you know, fuck you, you're blocking the bridge or, you know, this kind of uh, combative relationship that I think had its worst expression back then. Um, is that, do you feel like that's part of the work when you talk about Mohawk food when, with your show, but cause you also had a cooking show. I was talking about cooking Mohawk food. Is it, are you just doing it because this is what you're interested in? Or is there a larger kind of mission to, that can help the, the white world outside understand what the hell is going on?
1: I think there's, for me, there's multiple levels and layers to, to what I do and why I'm doing it basically. Like, uh, I have a a passion, number one, to create delicious food. Two, I'm a native Mohawk woman, and my interest in in how, how to use what we had and introduce that to the larger world where it will be beautiful, plated, delicious, you know, that is definitely my future goal to open up a restaurant and serve only you know, my fusion and what we're growing here. And of course, Danny Boyce Sturgeon. Um, But I forgot what the question
0: was. Yeah, no, you were answering it actually (laughs) right on the nose. But that's interesting that you say, uh, that you say, you know, you said delicious twice in there, which makes it different than kind of like a pure, you know, kind of activistic or academic approach. Like you actually... The work is to make it taste really good, and then all the good things will kind of come from that.
1: Yeah, use what we have, what, we're, what we can get our hands on. Because, um, for example, Paul says, oh, I don't like venison. So he's not that interested in getting a deer. And I was like, oh, please get the deer and I will show you. Delicious. You know what I mean? It's, it's what you're exposed to. It's what You can't try something once and say, oh, I hate that you know you have to try it seven different times from seven different chefs and cooks and mothers and you, because there's a thousand and one ways to to cook create recipes and 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 change yeah
0: food. i mean this is still one of the best things about food is you want to talk about behavior modification or changing the way that you think about other people or something deliciousness is just like a broad avenue that you can drive down to any kind of good goal of understanding Uh, Something I mean if there was like just kick-ass mohawk restaurants in the middle of montreal It feels like that would make a difference in the relationship, you know Mm -hmm. So that's the goal then that's the goal Okay,
1: it's at least the 10-year goal because I do have babies
0: (laughs) that is true, right? There's also there's there's more babies to have. (laughs)
1: Yeah, and i'm definitely focusing right now There's no way I could do both. I tried for a while and um, I can't, I can't be the excellent chef that I want to be and be the excellent mother and raise these, my family, the way I want to be. Yeah. So I'm lucky enough basically to be able to step away from, from cooking Yeah. like that catering.
0: It feels like that's not, they're not wholly unrelated, right? This is all a personal <laughs> mission of yours and taking care of people and feeding them and doing it in the home context. And then when they can tie their own shoes enough uh, right, and make their own venison uh, then then you can go out and bring this message well I'm very excited I will be uh, I will be there lined up for first service uh, at Tiffany Deer's new restaurant to be named uh, at a later date and cannot thank you enough for talking with me it's been so much fun
1: thank you thank you for coming
0: you've been listening to The Trip from Roads and Kingdoms Alexa Van Sickle is our producer, music by Dan the Automator, episode illustration by Daisy D, show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Next week, it's my old friend, Montreal native Jodi Ettenberg. She spent years traveling the world, writing smartly about life on the road, gaining a large and devoted following along the way. And then a rapid succession of medical calamities struck, and one of the world's great independent travelers now has to battle just to stand upright for any amount of time. It's an intense conversation about freedom and frailty with one of the most insightful people I know. We will meet you there.